The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to Season 14, Episode 8. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and in this episode, I'll be performing four tales to terrify you, courtesy of authors Kyle Harrison, Dale Thompson, Micah Edwards, and Finn McCool. Tonight, we'll hear stories of terrifying terrain, eerie expeditions, invasive insects, and calculated curses. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com 
and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs> Tonight, we take a moment to honor a landmass that really needs no introduction, but we'll get one anyway. Australia is a land of vast beauty, highly rated family television shows, and, as it's best known, a place where almost every part of the animal kingdom, and some plants too, seem ready and willing to do in anyone who even thinks to look at them in the right direction. Of course, not all of these stories are true, or at least are figments of legend. We'll begin tonight with the story of a couple who've had a rough time as of late, dealing with health issues that no one should ever have to face. But as Kyle Harrison's about to share, some things can be tougher than others to deal with, than a mere medical problem. Without further ado, I present to you The Walkabout. Cancer really does change everything. For me and my wife, Laura, it entered our lives in the spring of 2018. A fainting spell that led to a rush to the emergency room, which in turn revealed a diagnosis. Stage one of the brain, a metastasized growth that would eventually destroy her. Doctors gave her hope, of course. Treatment could slow down the disease and give her eh, a few more years, they said. We started chemo a few weeks after that, every Monday and Thursday. I made sure I was there to support her in every step of the way. There's no reason you should have to face this alone, I told her. For the first few months, we stayed positive. The different rounds of chemo seemed to be working. But then June, when we went to her oncologist, we were hit with an update we didn't expect. The cancer was spreading. We'll increase the radiation. Of course, you can still fight this. I remember the physician saying, Don't, my wife said with a shaky voice. Don't you dare give me false hope. Can you give us a moment, I asked, as I touched her hand and gently squeezed it. I'm sorry, Brandon. I, I don't think I can do this again. She said once we were alone. We can't give up. I don't want to lose you, I told her. She fought back more tears. Haven't you already? I knew she had already gone through so much pain. The radiation had caused her to lose some weight and most of her hair. I touched her cheek lovingly. You're still the same woman I fell in love with. We held each other for a moment as I came to terms with her choice. I knew I couldn't force her to continue when it would make her feel less than human. But that didn't mean that we were going to just give up altogether either. After we got home, I started searching online almost every other day for alternative forms of treatment. In the meantime, Laura started to make a bucket list. At first, it bothered me to see that she had consigned herself to accept the fate that she'd been given. But I did notice it seemed to lift her spirits. So much so that when she was out enjoying life, she stopped worrying about getting better. 
I tried my best to keep her focused by presenting different methods I found online from time to time, acupuncture, homeopathic remedies, but gradually she started to find excuses for why they wouldn't work, why she didn't need them anymore. Our goals were starting to drift farther and farther apart, and it eventually led to a confrontation. You need to stop making appointments for me, Brandon. I'm trying to help you, I said. I didn't ask for it. I've been happy with the time that God's given me. Isn't that better than wasting it in a futile attempt and hope to get better, she asked. Don't be so selfish, I told her. And that only made her more upset. Me? This is my life. Don't I get to have a say? I was too exhausted to keep the argument going. I knew she wasn't going to listen to me anyway. So I did something I wish I hadn't. I lied. It was a simple lie, starting out. I'd found an online review for a spiritual treatment near Perth, Australia, and I started thinking that it might be the right route for Laura. After all, before she'd decided to pursue her wish list fully, she'd tried a few methods that some might find bizarre. Meditation, hypnosis, the works. Was getting in touch with an inner strength really that much different? Plus, we had some friends over there that we'd been promising to visit for ages now. If I played my cards right, I could get her there and heal her, and then she would see that I had her best interests at heart. It seemed like a good idea at the time, but they say the path to oblivion is paved often with good intentions. I called our friend Grant the next weekend, giving him scarce details about the trip and its purpose, and he checked his calendar. Be around uh, early November? Any later than that, I'm all booked up with family or work, he told me. I knew that I was still trying to keep two jobs just to cover our expenses for a flight, but I'd make it work. Months flew by and I saved as much as possible, letting Laura pamper herself to get back into her good graces as well. Then I showed her the tickets on her birthday in September. She was elated, but suspicious. Australian walkabout? What'd I do to deserve this? I just want you to live your life, I told her. That was, well, part of the truth. She was on cloud nine and hugged my neck. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you for understanding. She said in between tears. I told myself that when the truth came out, that she would understand why I'd gone to such lengths. This was going to work. It had to. The next few weeks were a blur, but when it was finally time to go, everything went off without a hitch. I remember Laura squeezing my hand gently as our plane took off from New York. It was the last smile she ever had. Amid the twilight hours of our 18-hour flight to Sydney, the both of us drifted in and out of sleep. In my dreams, I saw us roaming the Australian outback together, a local shaman guiding us through the brush. The landscape was blanketed with a warm orange glow at first as gentle tumbleweeds skipped across the horizon. Then, dark storm clouds dotted the sky. Thunder and lightning rumbled and shook the earth. I could feel there was intense power in the air. Everything around us suddenly seemed electric and distant. It's coming, Laura whispered to me, her soft voice an echo amid the reverberations of the impending downpour. Suddenly the clouds opened with rainfall, 
Dark streams of water fell rapidly and crashed into the soil. The ground began to sink and shimmer, inverting its natural solidity until, at last, we started to sink. I saw Laura scream out, The shaman. The shaman was still watching, not offering any aid, almost as if it were futile even to do so. His eyes glowed from the fires of destruction as the clouds, the storm clouds behind us, started to form a distinct shape. Some beastly apparition was coming for us, to swallow us whole. At last, the sands covered us both as the storm made a noise like that of a ferocious creature, and I was forced out of the dream, jolting to full attention as I peered out the window. There was nothing to see except my own reflection in the shadows, but the dream felt so real, so vivid, I could describe every detail. Must be my nerves, I thought as I unbuckled and shuffled to the back of the plane. As I waited to use the loo, I checked our online itinerary to see how much farther we had. Seven hours and thirteen minutes, the readout said as the plane shook again from turbulence. Every little bump reminded me why I hated to fly. The door to the cramped toilet seat opened, and the man with a scar down the right side of his cheek stepped out, nearly colliding me... Uh, well, due to another rattle of the aircraft. As he regained his footing and apologized, our eyes met, and I realized he had a faint resemblance to the shaman from my dream. He grabbed a magazine from the aisle and returned to his seat as I puzzled over what I was sure had to be an odd coincidence. Inside the toilet, I washed my face and peered down at my own reflection, trying to calm my nerves. But there was nothing that looked back at me made me feel so anxious. What sort of black magic was this? I turned to unlock the door, and then my whole world turned upside down. I fell backward as the plane shook louder than ever before. My head smashed into the mirror, splintering the glass in a million different directions. Then I was against the ceiling, my body feeling like I was a mere ragdoll, being tossed around as the aircraft spiraled out of control. Somewhere amid the chaos, I heard the alarms and the screams from other passengers. The searing pain and the brutal rush of throttle made it impossible for me to move. And then the blackness took over. I slammed against the door again and I was out. When I awoke, I couldn't feel my legs. Fire and smoke covered my vision. I slowly tried to move before I realized a piece of shrapnel was lodged in my stomach. So instead, I turned on my side and looked through the murky debris to see if there were any signs of other survivors. I saw a few passengers crushed by the mass of scattered metal. Others were obliterated just by the force of the crash against the ground. But there was no sign of Laura or any other life anywhere. I coughed up blood and screamed for help at the top of my lungs. No one answered. I wasn't sure anyone ever would. Somewhere amid my blackouts, I felt a shadow fall over my broken body. I opened my swollen eyes to see the same man from the plane standing there, except this time he wasn't wearing a shirt. He was covered in burns and bruises. He knelt down alongside me to check where the metal was pressed against my side. Don't move, he ordered, as he used what little bits of clothing he had to set the wound. Once it was good and tight, he helped me to my feet, and I finally got a better look at the wreckage. I saw about a dozen or so passengers huddling near a massive pile of scrap and trying to stay warm as night crept over the outback. 
I still didn't see Laura anywhere, and my anxiety only increased as I turned to my rescuer and asked, Have you seen my wife? Please, I need to find her. I pulled out my phone to give him a picture, only to find that my phone had been completely destroyed by the crash. I'm sorry. This is all we've found so far. But the upper half of the plane may have crashed farther into the brush, he told me. I nodded, looking down at my phone, and then tossing it into the bonfire as well. I'll never forgive myself if something happened to her. I told him as we joined the others. You would be surprised what a person is willing to forgive, he said. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish, or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. I watched the embers for a moment longer and then offered my hand in thanks for his help. Brandon Ferris, thank you. He accepted it and told me his name was Jera Magnuson. Where are you from, I asked, noting the peculiarity of his name. Melbourne. I was on my way home. Guess I had a hiccup, he commented dryly, and then asked me why I was here. Well, I was hoping to take my wife on a walkabout. I've heard good things, I told him. Sounds like we'll get to have one of our own if we hope to make it out of here alive. I could tell most of the passengers were scared, unsure of what would happen next. I too was, if I'm being honest. But I was determined to find Laura. A few of the men agreed to stand guard as darkness overtook us. Even with the bonfire still raging, it still didn't seem like there was hardly enough to light, even to go five feet. We should head for civilization. There are dingoes and who knows what else out here, one woman said, as she tended to her young son. The boy looked like he'd suffered a severe head wound, and chances were if he didn't get medical attention soon, he might not make it. Traveling now would be a mistake, Jared told them all. I know these trails. Dingoes are the least of your worries. It was decided to wait until morning, but his warning about danger from beyond only made me worried more. What if Laura was out there alone? Would she be safe? Something doesn't feel right about this, the guy said, as we shared a cigarette near the edge of our makeshift camp. What do you mean, I asked. This junk has been burning for nearly six hours since we crashed, and no one has come. 
In fact, I don't think I've even seen a bird cross the sky, he commented. Huh, that is weird, I agreed. I think this crash was no accident. And that dude you've been rubbing shoulders with? He might be a terrorist, he whispered conspiratorially. I did my best not to show any skepticism. What makes you think that, I asked. He's keeping us here and making sure no one uses their cell phones. Mighty convenient how none of us even have any, don't you think? He remarked. We checked phones earlier. The crash destroyed them, I told a stranger. You're sure? Or is that what he told you? I glanced over to where Jera was sharing water with a few children who had survived, refusing to believe it. There's no need to distrust anyone, friend. We're all in this together. He tossed the cigarette onto the dark brown earth and gave a short huff. I guess we'll have to wait and see which one of us is right. The hours crept by and I watched Jera and the stranger, even as others in our group fell asleep. The conversation earlier had made me paranoid, especially since I'd seen Jera before in a dream. How did I explain that? But after a few hours of just watching them sleep, I was beginning to wonder why I hadn't taken my own advice to get rest. So I settled down and started to close my eyes. The moment of quiet did not last much longer. The sound of children screaming jolted me awake. It covered the entire outback. My eyes darted to where Jerry and the stranger had been resting, only to find that they were gone. I immediately raced toward the noise blindly, listening as the screams mixed with bellowing noises and voices. It wasn't long before I couldn't see the bonfire, and only the stars could guide me. I struggled to make sense of direction as the ground shook and the booming growl got closer. Another voice pierced the night. Brandon! Laura? I shouted back, rushing forward again. My feet struck thick mud and swampy water as I struggled to find her. The screams were incessant and the billabong smelled of blood. And from under the murky lake, something slithered past my right leg and I stumbled back onto shore. The rippling waves surged up to reveal something pushing itself out of the swamp. It was massive, shrouding the entire pond with its monstrous body as it towered over me and roared. From under its belly, I heard the stranger cry out for help as he struggled to escape its crushing power. But there was nothing I could do. The monster's jaw split open and stretched its neck to grab a hold of its next victim. His screams became louder until at last the beast had ripped him in two, a splash of blood scattering across the thrashing waters. Its guttural cry told me that it was the strange noise I'd heard through the darkness, and I knew if I didn't run, it would attack me next. Its shrieks echoed across as I stumbled through the brush, desperate to make it back to camp alive. I truthfully couldn't tell up from down. The dark sky and the blood-curdling screams disoriented me. Somewhere along the way, a figure stepped out from the tall grass and grabbed a hold of me. It took me a moment to realize it was Jara. Keep quiet, he ordered me, as we both fell to the ground. I heard nothing except the sound of my own heartbeat. Once a few minutes had passed, he gestured me to follow him on my belly in the opposite direction. Nothing stirred as we escaped the ferocious beast. But inside my mind, it was like a hornet's nest that had been knocked over. What was that thing? I asked as we finally returned to the safety of our camp. The others were armed to the teeth, 
waiting to see what would emerge behind us from the brush, but the night had returned to tranquility. Bunyip, Chera responded as he caught his breath and moved to the fire to get warmth. I followed, getting a better look at him in the dim light of the blaze. He had scars across his ribs and the back of his neck. It made me wonder why he had been out there amid the tall grass in the first place. We stood there in the darkness, in the quiet, for a while as he watched the embers dance until at last I found the courage to speak. He saved my life again. You're a lucky guy, but if the bunyip wanted you dead, you'd be dead, he responded. I've never heard of such an animal, I admitted. Most people who even see it don't live to tell the tale. Those who do deny they ever did. He whispered back as the wind picked up. You've seen it before, I asked. Legend says it's connected to the aboriginal tribes here. The bunyip lives in a world very different, yet similar to ours. The shamans call it the dream time. Sounds like an old wives' tale to scare kids, I said with a nervous laugh, as I remembered the strange dream I had the night before, the crash. It was, but all myth comes from fact. Some are simply more real than others, he said, his eyes mysteriously glowing in the fire. I covered up my shoulders, feeling uncomfortable with this conversation, as he stared up at the stars. How long have we been here? A few hours, maybe more, I guessed. He shook his head. No, it should be daylight by now. He left me standing there, pondering over his words as he started to rouse the survivors for a march. We need to move. As long as we stay here, we aren't safe, he told us. I was too scared to disagree, especially with the strange creatures still roaming the dark. All of us gathered what we could and started to move toward the tall grass. I stayed close to Chara listening as he mumbled to himself about the strangeness of our surroundings. This can't be. This can't be, he muttered repeatedly as we tried to push through reedy waters. Then the bellows returned. All of us froze as the noise echoed the barren landscape. The ground beneath my feet started to feel like sand. I turned to run the other way, only to find that I couldn't move. It had already entangled itself amid my legs. Chara was standing on the outside of the pit helping others move to safety, and the cry of the bunyip grew louder as I heard its thundering presence grow closer. Help me, I begged him. This time the man hesitated. Why did you come here, Brandon? he asked. Above us, the sky tumbled to life. It reminded me again of my nightmare. Had it been a prophecy? I told you already. To go on a walkabout with my wife, I shouted as I tried to escape the sinking dunes. The bunyip roared again, getting closer with each cry as Jara stood there watching me die. Your entire presence here has been a lie, hasn't it? The man said. What? What difference does it make? Tell me the truth, and I'll save you. Did you come here with good intentions in your heart? Jara ordered. It was nearly covering my waist, and I scrambled to answer. Yes, yes. I came to heal my wife. She's sick. The walkabout could heal her. Chara didn't seem satisfied. The sky got darker and I held my breath. You're lying. What are you holding back? What truth do you refuse to see, he snarled. The sand mixed itself around my neck and I closed my eyes, desperate to give him any answer he wanted. I think I might have blacked out. When I was awake again, we were resting in a cave. 
Jara was roasting a few wild rats over a fire as children ran amid the rocky tunnels. Outside, the storm crackled and brought me awake. I looked down at my clothes, now covered with soot and mud, and realized that it hadn't been a dream at all. The bunyip? I asked in between deep breaths as I calmed down. Still hunting us. A few were caught in its jaws as we scrambled here for safety, Jara said as he turned toward me. He no longer had a look of friendliness on his face. I cannot in good faith save you unless you tell me why you brought us here to this nightmare, Chara told me. Brought you here? I had nothing to do with the crash, I told him. You still deny it, even when you see it in your own eyes. The monster of every nightmare roams these lands, and you think we're safe to keep lying to one another? Jara said, shaking his head in disgust. What are you implying? That the monster is hunting all of us down because of me? I asked incredulously and then pointed my finger toward him. How can we be sure it isn't you? You lured one of us out in the middle of the night to be slaughtered by that thing, I told him. The bunyip only kills in the dream world. Every dead thing it has destroyed is an illusion. This world is an illusion, Brandon Ferris, he told me softly. I nearly laughed in his face. You're crazy. The pain I've felt since the crash is real. The people dead, the children ripped in two. Are you telling me that's all in my head? Yes and no. The dream world isn't as real as you want it to be. But I do not know why it's making us suffer. What it is trying to show you... Wish I did so that we could all be free, Jara whispered. I shook away the notion, refusing to believe that our experiences were just some mad, feverish nightmares from the subconscious of a monster. I still needed to find Laura to save her. Brandon, if you can't come to terms with what you've done, with what you are doing, I can't let you stay here. We're all in danger the longer you ignore what the Dreamtime is trying to tell you. Jara said as he reached for a long spear he'd crafted from a bamboo. You can't be serious. I gotta go out there? I'll die, I told him. Or you confront your dreams you refuse to let die. Jara said, waving the makeshift weapon toward my face. I raised my hands defensively and started to leave the cave, frustrated that he was acting so irrationally. But I didn't need his help. I came here alone with one mission, to save my wife. I didn't need anyone to finish that goal. I think I walked for a good hour across the barren terrain of the outback. I can't rightly tell you where I was or where I was going. Each area looked the same to me. Without someone to guide me, it felt hopeless to keep going. This was not the spiritual walkabout I'd hoped for. Instead, I was simply meandering through the wilderness. As I came toward a river, I let exhaustion overcome me and rested on the bank. The churning waters were soothing. They reminded me of the gentle hum of the jet engine. As I stared at the water, I looked down to peer at my own reflection, but I saw nothing. It reminded me of the experience in the plane, that fractured mirror I'd shattered and destroyed. Why hadn't I seen anything there either? What did it mean? Suddenly the ground shook with the roar of the bunyip. The creature was almost on top of me. Somehow I found the strength to get back to my feet, trying to determine where it was coming from. Then I heard a voice over the top of the noise. Laura, 
She was calling to me. I followed it down the river, trying to escape the bellowing creature. I'm here, I'm here, I told her. But instead of finding my wife, I saw the monstrous bunyip begin to rise from the swarthy waters. Its jaws widened with a splitting gape, rows of jagged teeth preparing to swallow me whole as it screamed louder. And from somewhere beyond it, Laura was desperately calling to me. You have to wake up, Brandon. You have to let me go. The bunyip was now towering twelve feet in the air, its body covering any hope of escape. Let you go? How can you say that? I asked her back. Because I love you. Because even though my life is ending, that doesn't mean yours has to as well. Her voice echoed across the outback. The tail of the bunyip smashed down the grass, and the creature had me surrounded. It would only take one bite to rip me in two. No, this is supposed to be our dream. I love you, Laura. I can't lose you, I yelled back. Brandon, you have to wake up, she shouted back desperately. The bunyip had me in its grasp. Only the endless pit of its stomach was left to be seen. I felt every claw sear into my flesh, every bone in my body break. I felt its teeth rip into me and shred apart my spine. It crushed me like a fragile egg. It was killing me and eating me alive all at once. Then I was inside the belly of the beast. Nothing but darkness surrounded my broken and bruised body. The pool of blood from my wounds seeped out on all sides as I tried to get up, but it was hopeless. I felt a gentle hand against mine. My blackened eyes opened to see Laura standing there, almost like a spirit looming over my body. Was she even here at all? Was any of this real? You have to let me go, Brandon. Stop living a lie. You have to heal yourself and love yourself, she told me soothingly. I saw the other survivors amid the belly of the bunyip, the children it had slaughtered, the stranger in Jara, too. Then I realized the stranger was me. It was my own misgivings about everything I had toward this trip, how I was afraid I would fail. Please wake up and be with me for what little time we have left, Laura told me. She passed toward me what appeared to be a white lily of the field. I saw Jara nod in approval for me to accept this gift from her spirit. Was this my acceptance back to the world I was familiar with? Did waking from this endless nightmare mean that I had come to terms with my wife's terminal illness? I'm scared. I told her as my body started to decompose. I felt my skin begin to melt, my muscles atrophy. Everything was decaying rapidly. I didn't have much time left to make a choice or to be trapped amid the endless hunt of the bunyip. She touched my face and we kissed. I closed my eyes, feeling the last of my willpower leave me. I was dead, or as close to the feeling as possible. Numbness and a tingle like a cold sweat ran through my body. Then I opened my eyes again and found that I was still on the plane. The flight attendant was announcing that we were about to land in Sydney. At my side, Laura woke with a yawn and smiled. Any good dreams? she asked me. I didn't know what to say about the experience, but I did realize I had something to tell her. I took her hand and tried to be brave. Laura lied. I wanted this walkabout to heal you, but I should have realized that you were already better. I'm sorry. She processed the information quickly as our plane landed on a runway. I just want to enjoy the time we have together now and make our dreams together for as long as we have. 
I told her truthfully. Laura was quiet for the most of the time as we left the plane and got our bags. I wasn't sure what her reaction would be until, at last, we were outside waiting for an Uber. I'll go on a walkabout, Brandon, and we'll do it together. Even if it doesn't work, at least we'll have one more adventure together, she told me. Our cab pulled up, and I was thanking the stars that we had made peace with one another. What do, mates? Our driver asked, and I nearly did a 180. It was Jara. There was no mistaking him this time. Nervously, I passed him the directions to where our walkabout would begin, and he started taking our bags. Have you ever been on one of these before? Laura asked. Jarrah smiled broadly and then looked straight at me as if sharing some unspoken words. Plenty of times, he told us. I squeezed Laura's hand as we got back into the cab. Would you say that it's a dream come true or a nightmare? I nervously chose to ask. He glanced back through the rearview mirror and winked at me. Mate, that's entirely up to you. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I hope you enjoyed The Walkabout by Kyle Harrison, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed the tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support him by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash Kyle dash Harrison. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash K-Y-L-E dash H-A-R-R-I-S-O-N. Thanks again for your support of this program and tonight's featured author. Sometimes you wake up and realize that it's all a dream and a good thing. But then sometimes you wake up and realize, oh dear, I really do need to do something about that burglar that fell into the basement trap system. Since the self-quinning system's on the fritz, you win some and you lose some. The bunyip is, indeed, a very distinctive part of Australian folklore, to be sure. But just about everyone has a story about it, 
And even among neighbors, it can take on a very different form. Dale Thompson tells us about an expedition to find one, not in the dream world, but in the real one. But what not every journey uh, goes smoothly. And the bunyip isn't the only thing to watch out for. Uh, Further into the wilderness one treads. Without further ado, I present to you the bunyip. Conclusions are seldom facts and hardly ever stopping points. Once a fact is established, there'll be many who will attempt to unseat the newfound truth, especially if it threatens their own personal beliefs and convictions. Some take a cosmological approach and some make metaphysical claims. Regardless, it doesn't matter what your truth is, it may not be someone else's truth. The settling of arguments and disputes always needs a mediator, an arbitrator, or a judge. This sort of thing usually ends up as an arbitrary choice made after deliberations, after evidence is presented for and against such discussions. Arguing and debating are primitive ways of finding solutions because some people simply enjoy the critical attention, the contention, and most of all, the controversy. I found myself with my new bride on a post-honeymoon adventure in New South Wales, Australia. I enjoy anthropomorphism in that I believe there are many species related to human beings that we've not discovered. My wife and I both suffer from this rarity of conditions, which I chance to say maybe is not a condition or sickness, but rather a fun hobby. An example would be we're both sensitive to sounds. We both hear at times voices in the wind. We hear songs when the bath is being poured, and even singing when the tea kettle whistles. We say it's angels communicating on a frequency that we're unable to decipher with any clarity. You might be wondering what we're doing down under in Australia. Well, Oceania, as the continent's called, is a place of wonder. Some explored, some of it abandoned. My wife Doris and I, AJ they call me, short for Andrew James, read about this mythical creature called a bunyip. Needless to say, little's known because there's no footage of such a creature, but eyewitness reports are in abundance. This is another one of those elusive creatures or cryptid beasts that folklore and legends keep alive. Both of us had always wanted to visit Australia, and this gave us a reason to do so. This bunyip had recently been sighted on the banks of the Murrumbidgee River in a town called Darlington Point. This bunyip had been described as many things. Some called it bovine because apparently it had been seen grazing. Some have sworn they saw it and it was furry. Others stated it had scales. Supposedly, the Aboriginal tribes have witnessed this creature killing a man with its tusk and eating it, making it a man-eater. We learned that another name for the bunyip was devil or evil spirit. We were up for the challenge. We spent our first day in Darlington Point, which for us was a throwback to a different era, Where we'd traveled from, there was always the hustle and bustle of life, and hardly any time could be found for a simple stop-and-smell-the-flowers moment. We did the usual touristy things and bought a couple of gifts to take back with us, and then we prepared for our hike into the outback. 
If anything, we were going to get to the bottom of this sighting and bring about a conclusion, addressing all the facts and speculations. We packed for a three-day outback excursion, and the day after we arrived, we were trekking out. If we'd come to locate the koala bears, we could have already returned home because there are plenty of those furry little creatures hanging out in trees. My wife made the remark that she would love to smuggle one back with us, but I countered with, yeah, the Doberman would love to play with that little fella. We walked until it was necessary to make camp. We wanted to stay near the river, figuring that would give us the best opportunity to catch sight of the bunyip if it came out to drink or feed. We certainly did not want to become this mythical creature's midnight snack. We'd brought an air horn and a can of bear spray, assuming that bear spray would repel any sort of attack by any creature. Once settled in our tent, Doris put on some soup and we listened to the sounds outside. We swore we could hear the cockatoos nesting for the night. There was no mistaking the throaty bleeding and humming of desert frogs, but we couldn't be sure which species they were. We'd heard a flock of pajurgars off in the distance, beating their wings, but never saw those beautiful yellow and green feathered birds. They were just ahead beyond the tree line. We hoped to get a glimpse of them tomorrow. After we had our soup and put away the dinner dishes, we settled in for the night. We'd placed a couple of motion detectors around the tent, which would alert us if anything large might come into our campsite. It was wonderful getting back to nature and sleeping on the ground, we believed this was true therapy for everything the city piled on us. It was as if we didn't have a care in the world. I was sleeping as comfortably as I can ever remember when something woke me from my unconscious reveries. I sat straight up and felt for Doris. She moaned as if to say, I'm asleep. I listened intently, wondering if I'd dreamed the noise. I've had dreams where a fiend would scream in my face, and I swear I could actually hear it. I would wake up in the same way I had just woken. My heart rate was up, and I'd sweated through my T-shirt terribly. I heard nothing extraordinary or unnatural, but I wasn't happy with this confirmation just yet. I convinced myself I needed to unzip the tent and at least shine a lantern around. I suppose it was better to be safe than sorry. I attempted to cross over Doris's legs without waking her and did so, but the zip made a grinding shriek and she stirred but never fully awoke. I extended the lantern outside the tent first and poked my head out. While wavering the light back and forth, I could see the moonlight reflecting off the river and everything appeared to be normal in the cosmos. I assumed whatever I heard was not the eschatological end of things, so I retreated and put the zipper back. I'd just fallen asleep again when I was once again abruptly shaken from my sleep, but this time it was an ungodly howl of a creature. It had to be man-sized to make such an alarming sound. Doris even sat up, rubbing her eyes. Was that your stomach? I thought surely she was kidding, so I didn't dignify that with an answer. This time I had to strip away all of the facile assumptions I had made earlier because this was a real howl from somewhere out there. I couldn't justify laying back down, so again I undid the zipper, and this time I crawled out of the tent with Doris at my heels. Such a howl is inconceivable, I said in a mumble more in thought than a statement. 
I'll admit that by this time I was feeling anxious. I suppose I was still nervous from being startled just moments before the howl. It feels imminent, doesn't it? Doris supposed. Imminent? I questioned. Timidly, she said, Yeah, well, there's something that created that horrific sound. Yeah, something. I could only agree. Going back to sleep seems contingent upon finding whatever was out there and chasing it further from the camp, but we didn't know what we were dealing with. I sat the lantern down and retrieved a flashlight, which I had hoped would illuminate some of the off-putting, disconcerting shadows. I felt a moral responsibility to sort this out, not just for my own comfort, but also for Doris's safety. If there was a dangerous animal lurking, such as a bunyip, maybe I needed to man up and personally run it off. Doris was holding the bear spray and I had the air horn. We were on tiptoe, leaving camp to investigate past the tree line. After we'd gone an unsafe distance from the tent, I feared that we might come across the bunyip, in which case, I don't know if such a creature was impassable, unable to feel pain. Doris reached out and gripped my arm tightly. She squeezed it so that I didn't have to ask what she wanted. I stopped instantly and heard her say, Those trees are moving. I thought it could possibly be the wind, but I had misunderstood the depth of her observation. She meant the trees were moving, not the limbs and branches. The trees were also making a sizzling sound like bacon frying, almost like the starting of a crackling fire. In a brilliant move on my part, I saw what she was looking at. Several trees did look like they were shimmying as if the bark was rustling. I thought how impossible this was until I realized what it was that we were looking at. I clutched Doris's arm and yelled in order to run. The tree was literally crawling with spiders. What kind of spider, I didn't know from first glance, but Australia has the deadliest, and one will kill a person. A thousand, it'd be really bad. As we ran, we could hear the pitter-patter of their tiny legs. The horde was after us. I would have rather faced a single man-eating bunyip than have a war with an army of creepy-crawlers. We dove into the tent, and I zipped it tight. We shone the light in every corner, making sure the tent did not have any small holes where any of the cluster could barge in. What kind were they? Doris asked, knowing I'd read up on dangerous creatures and critters in Australia before we set off on our adventure. I couldn't be sure because of my immediate panicked state, but I tried to sound intelligent. It could have been the funnel web spider or even redbacks, but a cluder this large is out of the norm. Something had to have spooked them, and I don't think it would have been us. I heard something earlier, not sure what it was, but it snapped me out of my sleep right before he woke up. I could see concern in her blue eyes. I could also see worry because I didn't know if bear spray worked on spiders or not. We had to make a deliberative and thoughtful decision about what to do next, but we were given no chance when an ineluctable malformation appeared on the tent. In a truly coherent contemplation, I didn't have to guess what we were experiencing. The tent bent in the middle from the weight. I gave it a slap to see if I could dislodge them, and Thora screamed out, You're provoking them. I replied, They're provoking me. I slapped the ceiling of the tent again, and it was at that very moment the floor of our tent began a rolling motion 
as if something was coming up from the ground. Dora stated the obvious. Underneath us, too. We've got to run for the river, I exclaimed. We can't go out there. This place is overrun. They'll be on us as soon as we step out, Doris voiced her vexation. We can't stay here. We'll be buried in here if we stay. Take my hand. I shouted over the scratching noises of those eight-legged, arachnid freaks. We threw on our backpacks and didn't believe we had time to grab everything, but hoped we had the essentials. I glanced at Doris and mentally asked her, Are you ready? She gave a simple nod and I unzipped the tent. We ran like our lives depended on it, which they did. It was a short piece to the river and we leapt off a small ledge about five feet above the waterline and dropped feet first into the moderate flow of the river. Are you bitten? I asked her. No, I, I don't believe so. I never felt them on me. I was thankful for that. We drifted along, and I tried to use the light of the moon to avoid any dangerous things in the water, like stonefish, or even the dreaded lionfish. I prayed fish slept at night. Fortunately, we saw no fish or any snakes. I knew that the feared water python would be formidable, but I read they were found mainly up north. However, I did not want to cross the waterways with a hook-nosed sea snake. One bite would kill twenty-two grown men. I deliberately did not share this information with Doris. She'd been through quite an ordeal already. We floated a couple hundred yards, and the river made a slight bend, and we went ashore. Although we drifted long, our energy was spent. We used every ounce of vigor we had by escaping our tent. Now we were wet and oddly cold, and had only managed to grab half of our supplies before our dash out. As intrinsically beautiful as the forest was, it had turned dastardly ugly and insufferably impassable. I understood that our only hope of escaping the intolerable forest and returning to civilization would be in daylight. We had forfeited our artificial light and presumably would have no chance of finding our way out. This forest was impenetrable without proper lighting. Without marked trails and no doubt obstructions every other step, it would be an impossible attempt. We were forced to strip naked and hang our clothes on branches, hoping they'd be dry in the morning. We had no shelter, no extra clothes, so we huddled together, attempting to keep one another warm. The repellent notion that we were going to die here was something I didn't share with Doris. She was, invariably, with good reason, frightened out of her mind. It would have been unfair to lay more grief upon her, and to state the banal truism of our current predicament. I spoke a silent prayer that we'd be delivered from this pathos of sorrow, and that, if at all possible, we would not have to endure any exorbitant amount of suffering in the process. Unable to shut my eyes, I could hear every movement around us, every rustling of the leaves, as the wind gently blew through the limbs and branches, every nocturnal creature that had lurked, from the microbat to the bandicoot, the small, statured bilby, feather-tailed glider, and owls were all going about their business. It could have been my oversensitivity, but every noise was amplified in my ears. I could feel Doris drifting to sleep as her body was gradually relaxing in my arms when we both were jolted by a spurious, deadly howl that far surpassed the pitch choruses of a wolf or even that of the forest communications of a howler monkey. 
It filled us with a new kind of violating fright that bitted our emotions with penetrating painful force. I couldn't be absolved of my natural fear of the unknown, especially after hearing again this super-eminent howl of what I supposed was the controversial bunyip. There simply was no other explanation for such a raucous roar. My worldview was being challenged, and all I had ever believed or known was yielding in severe humility to these terrors. Doris was fully awake, conscious of the crepuscular threat. That was awful, she said, and she freed herself from my arms. More or less, relatively, we were in an impossible situation at the mercy of unmerited torment. The dereliction of my abilities to soothe their fears was not purposefully done. I simply had no promises or means of assuring her that we were going to be all right. Our hope was waged between mournful whispers and additional cheering that trespassed upon our remoteness. The only thing that could restore faith was that we would survive the darkness. We were helplessly exposed, nestled in an unsurpassable, unwelcomed, unknown land, beyond comprehension, surrounded by the sounds of a diverse array of arboreal creatures responding to the call of darkling necrophages whose species was irrelevant, for we had no refuge, no stronghold to fall back on. It was not as simple as retreating or withdrawing. Cowering was our best defense. Something heavy was crashing through the forest. Loud footfalls crushed the vegetation beneath, and it was running wildly, growling, snorting, sniffing as if hunting, unconcerned with the art of the surprise attack, for whatever this creature was, it was confident in its ability to force itself upon its prey without covering or camouflage. Perhaps even preponderantly, this beast only needed its full brutality to take down its next meal. My heart ached in abject terror, and I couldn't console Doris, who had both hands pressing against her mouth to restrict a cry and suppress a scream that would surely give away our position. Conversely... It was I who might have cried out first, but I managed to swallow that awful weakness and quietly pulled our clothes from the branches. They had hardly dried, but at least they weren't soaking wet. I didn't want us to be running like naked Adam and Eve when they hid from God in the Garden of Eden. I would not be happy to be found naked, dead, or alive by anyone who might have been sent to rescue or retrieve us. The creature was down by the river some fifty or sixty yards from our position. Seeing this beastly thing caused me, even more, to recoil miserably into a shell of quivering self-scorn. I despised the way it made me feel. I loathed the figure, as it seemed to proudly stand upright on the banks of the river, its piggish nose turned upward. We were only privy to its bulky, densely opaque, dirty brown, hairy profile, silhouetted in moon rays. I trembled at the thought that this might be our last moments together, and the thoughts of spending them less than a man was unbearable. But what could I do? What should I do, if anything at all? The senseless depravity that had me captured under its discernible, wildly foolish notions was a habit with misguided interpretations causing unthinkable stress to the point I was outraged at myself yet without recourse. I did remember my cell phone. 
I instinctively considered to endeavor that I should attempt to take a picture of the unbelievable creature. But my phone had been submerged in the river when we fled the spider attack. I wasn't sure if it would work. I pushed the on button and the screen lit up. Doris's face had the bloodlessness of dough, a pallor so white I was scared she might faint. Without even attempting to do so, the beast manifested itself with boundless cruelty as it hunkered down on all four to drink from the river. It exemplified a callous indifference and embodied every characteristic and trait of the bunyip I'd ever read about. I held the phone up, but it failed to focus. Something was certainly wrong with it. The water must have corrupted it. Doris, as bleach-faced as before, handed me her phone, which she thoughtfully had sealed in a plastic bag for reasons unknown to me. But it wasn't the intelligent thing to have done. I took aim with it, making sure I didn't have the flash on, and I shot a couple of pics. The bunyip turned, facing us. Not knowing what sort of eyesight the thing had, we only hoped it had not spotted us. This was not a serendipity moment. All sorts of notoriously irrational thoughts seized my mind, conceptualizing our impending doom. It was a confusing scene to play out. We'd managed to get felicitously and fancifully dressed, and I was able, in that process, to be fortunate enough to have videoed the two-tusked, rumpled beast, and it did not seem to have noticed us. Once dressed, we remained perfectly still. We were cold and damp, hidden in a very dark place. There was nothing we needed to express, for any expression or quiet locution would no doubt be the formula for an imminent attack. The bunyip yawned, revealing a mouthful of jagged teeth. This saber-toothed monster was either tired or, like a dog does, when trying to soothe itself, they yawned to make themselves more comfortable or to relieve stress. My own stress levels were peaked. They could not exceed my depraved vitality any more than was already present. As despairing as this uncomfortable environment was, I was actually recording the bunyip. This was gold in my hands if the wind didn't suddenly change directions. I wouldn't want the last few seconds of the once-in-a-lifetime recording to be me being murdered ruthlessly by a towering, apish beast. The bunyip turned its back to us. Strangely, it had a protruding, rippling spine that slunk down into a whip-type tail. Brusquely, it arched backward, and what came from its innermost being caused Doris and I to both shield our ears. The howling roar was as if a freight train was blowing its horn as it raced by at incredible speeds. To say we had the creeps, well, that'd be an understatement. Its call was so disturbing that lofty stratum of the air stirred ferociously and the wind whirled around like it had been a funnel cloud picking up loose vegetation and broken limbs and sticks and twirling them in a swirling vacuum. The rotation grew in intensity and then burst into a tiny expulsion, with debris being cast away like projectiles opposite where we were crouched. I felt something crawling on my neck, and I reluctantly brushed it off. To my horror, it was a bulldog ant. One bite from these vicious formicidae, and it would have put me into anaphylactic shock. 
I arbitrarily raised my eyes to see thousands of them, descending the tree directly over top of us, where we believed to have had sanctuary. Doris saw this as well, and her face changed to something wretched like I'd never witnessed before. In contorted horror, her face had the expression of an all-consuming horror. This was not ambiguous at all. It was likely unfashionable certain death if we remained still. Now we had no other options. We were faced with the morbid certainty of running for our lives. As hurried as we could move without causing a sensational disturbance, which would surely attract the attention of the bunyip, we impulsively surrendered and abandoned our post and moved as quietly and graciously as humanly possible in the opposite direction of the bunyip and the marching army of deadly ants. This definitely piqued my curiosity and inquisitive side, yet there was no time to examine or study this phenomenon. We were literally ill-prepared for anything out of the ordinary or transmundane. As venerably intrigued as I was with the bunyip, I had successfully captured his image and likeness clearly on the phone's camera, if only for a brief moment. Juxtaposed, it had to be some antiquated soul, a forest spirit, maybe. Without further scrutiny, I may never know. As we made our way, I couldn't shake loose the terror that afflicted me and my emotional concern for Doris, who was depending on me to rescue her. Consequently, what could I have been thinking, bringing my wife to such an outrageously dangerous place? Everywhere we'd turned, whether following a map or becoming frantically lost, we had ironically encountered things that wanted to kill us time and time again. If not spiders, it was the unrelenting Myrmecia bullfrog ants, and we still knew nothing of the bunyip to testify to its idiosyncrasies, such as... Was it nomadic? Was it primordial, or did it possess instinctual qualities? Or was it about to use critical rationalism? What was its gender? It was all undetermined, undiscovered. All I'd recorded was something that could be construed as a man in a grotesque monkey suit. I didn't record its deafening howl, and it would be impossible to accurately describe it to anyone. Agreeably, we decided to head back to our original campsite. We were not yet desperate, but we were reasonably exhausted. Having no sleep and hunger was beginning to kick in. We worked our way back upstream along the riverbank, somewhat confused and confounded, wishing we were back to the creature comforts of home. It would be invaluable to us if our campsite had gone undisturbed and if the spiders had returned to their web world. As we approached a small clearing where we had pitched our camp, we noticed the tent was lopsided as if a heavy weight had been leaned against it. My gut sank abysmally at the imponderable destruction. The place looked like some malicious force had decided to ransack us. There were no obvious spiders lingering. It was difficult to imagine that spiders could do this, and it left us only with conjecture and more questions. Oddly, as we went through and scrutinized the mass... Most of our equipment had gone untouched. Regrettably, some of our food was missing, but gratefully, much of it remained. Inside the tent, it was stale and stagnant, as if some musky animal had made its bed there overnight. We gathered our supplies. The tent was wrecked with 
bent poles and some considerable rips and tears, which made it useless against the elements. It wasn't our intention to spend another night here. The sun should be up soon, I thought. Then we would trek out of here. Doris was outside the tent looking for anything that had been dragged out and strewn throughout the vicinity. AJ, come look at this, she said with some agitation in her tone. I emerged from the tent to find Doris standing over a dead wallaby. Its throat had been ripped completely out and it had been gutted. The internal organs and entrails were missing. That could have been us, Doris grimly said. She was right. We made it out just in the nick of time. I recognized this carcass as what Australians call a black stinker. That explains the smell in the tent, but not what killed the thing. I stated as I scoured the area with a flashlight I'd left behind for anything Doris may have missed. Have you seen our lantern? I asked. No, not yet, she answered, moving closer to the trees. Stay close, don't go near the trees. It was still too dark for us to see if anything was watching us. I advised believing that whatever dissected the poor wallaby could still be in the area. Doris moved back into the light, convinced of the cogency and validity of my argument. We were equivalently stronger together than venturing off alone. I found a bear spray, Doris said, smiling. That's great. We might need that. I said, just as a crackling noise nearer to us than I wanted to hear, shattered my confidence, any of it, that I may have gained from her fine. Quickly, I motioned, then taking Doris's hand, we ran behind the tent for concealment. From the other direction, the bunyip stepped out from the foreboding shadows directly into the last moonlight of the night, and it let out another terrifying roar, which tapered into a howl but still was resounding enough we held our ears closed. I took the bear spray from Doris's hand. What are you doing? She sounded concerned, and I believed she had every right to be, because I had no immediate plan. It's found us. I think it knows we're here. I'll attack it with the spray and you run. I'll be right behind you, I said. I wasn't sure if this was an act of desperation or a heroic move. Either way, the outcome was most uncertain. Already breathless, my heart pounding out of my chest, I counted down. Three, two, one, run! Doris leapt up and ran. I stood, feeling very small in comparison to the bunyip. The creature turned and squared up to me. His face contorted into an angry scowl, and its eyes lit up as if it was looking at its next fresh meal. I could see it clear enough to see where... There were bloodstains on its chest, which I assumed was from the wallaby or some other recent kill. The bunyip opened its mouth, revealing the true length of its tusk, and that's when I made my move. I fired the bear spray directly into its cavernous mouth. It winced and recoiled and pawed at its face. I'd sprayed the solution straight into its mouth, and the potency of the mace was so strong the spray went up into its nostrils and into its eyes. It cried out as the burning spray took effect. The beast thrashed around blindly, coughing and choking on a large amount of lethal deterrent. I'd turned to follow Doris when I saw her walking back toward me, emerging from the trees where she should have at least been hiding. I was dumbfounded. The threat had been temporarily neutralized, but the bear spray did not last forever. So why did she feel it necessary to come back? 
Coming out of the forest trailing her were several Aboriginal men, all painted in their yellow ochre indigenous decoration carrying spears. They're here for the creature, Doris said as she ran up and embraced me with relief. I still didn't know what was going on. Here for the creature? Yes, they told me. This bunyip is basically theirs. It's their property. I think it's like a religious or traditional thing. One of the drives had been approached, and sternly he spoke. I am Koa of the Kamaluari peoples. Bayami, our skyfather, has sent us to show you the way out. You are safe now. Wandaba comes with us now. I watched the other tribesmen subdue the bunyip with ropes and lead the injured creature away as if it were merely a runaway puppy. Koa led us safely from the forest and back to a familiar trail. He said his goodbyes, nice and simple. Yalu, Yare, Nama, Thurilan, which I am told meant, Goodbye, the sun is rising. Just then, we saw a chatter of Bajadiragars flying across the sky just ahead of us. They were heading north following the rainfall. Their bright yellow and green plumage, like a splash of color, to an already blue sky. I found out after we made our long way back home to civilization that the aboriginal people called the Bajirigars Becheriga, or in English, good food. John Gould, ornithologist from the 1800s, asked a question of the birds in his day, and I quote, Good food. It's unknown whether this means the bird itself is good food and good eating, or whether their seed-seeking migrations led Gamilare to places of rainfall and abundant food. I hope you enjoyed The Bunyip by Dale Thompson, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed what you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash dale-thompson. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash d-a-l-e-dash-t-h-o-m-p-s-o-n. Thanks again for your support of this program and tonight's featured author. And more than that, A thank you to all of tonight's featured authors. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring Twice the Terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 a month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. 
You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyrie channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Gyrie. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted, and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience 
and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.